0: hero. Hero has a challenge behind it. because, all well and good to say, I want to do something. The challenge behind it is to live it out in our daily lives, to live the character traits of a godly hero. And the word hero is an acronym. It's H-E-R-O. And using the life of a man named David, or we know as King David, we can recognize that David had a heart of God. David was often referred to as a man after God's own heart. And David certainly needed that in his life, and it shaped and molded who he was. And with that, we can see it grow and develop because David did not have an easy life. He had a very difficult life. He was anointed as a teenager to be the next king of Israel. He defeated the, the Goliath, the giant, but also he ran for years for his life, hiding in caves. He went from mountaintop experiences down to the deepest valleys where he didn't know whether or not he was going to survive the night. So therefore, he needed to find encouragement, not from his circumstances, but from God. We also recognize in David's life he was by no means a perfect man. He committed some serious sins. And when he was confronted with those sins, he turned away from those sins and toward God. And that's where we see repentance toward God. where We can recognize in our lives how a person can turn away from the old and toward what is new, away from our sin and towards the thing of God. And what we're speaking of today is a wonderful truth about being obedient. But not just obedient to our surroundings, obedient to things we want, obedient ultimately to God. And we're going to use this as our definition today. Biblical obedience is to hear God's word and act accordingly. To hear what is true and then act upon it the way that God wants us to act. Another definition that I came across was this, the supreme test of faith in God and reverence for Him. So today we're talking about the positive character trait of obedience to God. Oftentimes we look at that and go, but you know what, I'm just going to settle for compliance. Just do what I told you to do. If you are a parent here today, or if you are a child, either someone has said this to you or you have said this to your children probably more than a dozen times, just obey. Will you please just clean your room? I don't care if you don't want to do that. And you have incredible debates with three-year-olds, and they win sometimes. And we settle for compliance. But in reality, we, we shouldn't settle for compliance. We need to have Biblical obedience, where we hear God's word and act accordingly. If you take that definition and turn it upside down, it would be to hear my word and to act accordingly. And on the outside, it looks really good. And we sometimes we settle for, as long as I look spiritual on the outside, as long as I can impress the people at church on Sunday, and forgive me to pick on you, I'll pick on the people I'm sitting on the front row. There's extra spiritual people on the front row here. You know, they come, don't they look spiritual? They know when to sit down. They know when to stand. They brought the biggest Bible out. And we look at it and think, those are spiritual people. And we know that the scripture says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God is far more interested in our our attitudes on the inside. And he has some really, really strong negative words for when we act spiritual on the outside, but we don't live it out in true obedience on the inside. Jesus addressed a group of people called the Pharisees. In the book of Matthew, chapter number 22, Jesus addresses, uh, really in a very serious way, the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They, would, they were the lawyers. They knew the law, and they lived it out, and they wanted everyone else to see it on the outside, and people were naturally impressed with their spirituality. And then Jesus comes along and gives them the reality check of all reality checks and says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, religious people on the outside. And he calls them hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Have you ever been to a cemetery and walked around and go, This place is just beautiful, until you realize what's six feet below your feet? In Bunbury, we have a mausoleum. In fact, we have two mausoleums. And if you have like seventy dollars or $80,000, you can find your final resting place in one of the Bunbury mausoleum. And I had the pleasure of being invited by the Bunbury Cemetery Commission to bless and to pray a prayer blessing over the mausoleum, which is something that I've never had the opportunity to do. And I doubt i would ever have the opportunity again It's a once in a lifetime opportunity to pray a prayer blessing upon a mausoleum. And the mausoleum has marble floors, marble on the sides, and a number of different places for people to to have their final resting place. It's air-conditioned 24 hours a day. There's beautiful couches, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And you walk in there, and you go, this is a beautiful mausoleum, until you realize what is just a few centimeters away from you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. On the outside, you are impressive. But on the inside, you're just like a dead people's bones. And it continues on in verse number 28 and says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus uses some really strong language here that we should say, I don't want that to be described as me. So therefore, how should we live? Our principle for today is this, and every Sunday we have a principle we seek to apply to our life, and this week is, to be a godly hero, I will hear and act upon God's will. Thinking through the acronym again, the H-E-R-O, the heart of God, the encouragement from God, the repentance toward God, and finally the obedience to God, the acronym of HERO. We see that God had to make some serious changes in the the life of, of his leaders. And he had to mold and shape them as time went on. You see, David became the king of Israel. But previous to David being the king, there was a man named Saul who was the king. And Saul had the same opportunities, the same spirit of God was upon him, but he chose to do things his own way and he was in very real way obedient to the things that he wanted to do rather than being obedient to the things that God wanted to do. King Saul, along with his troops were preparing themselves for battle one day. It's recorded in the book of First Samuel chapter number 15. And as they're preparing themselves for battle, They have a sacrifice that they they bring out, and they're waiting for God's prophet Samuel. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're like, we have a battle to get to. We want the blessings of God in our life, but where is God's prophet? And Saul said, you know what? I'll do the sacrifice this time. I'll take that upon myself. So in other words, he was doing a really good spiritual thing, but it wasn't what God had called him to do. So typically, as soon as you do something wrong, that's when you get caught. The one time you speed the entire trip, that's when you get caught. The one time that you do wrong, and that's what we find with Saul, but he did it again and again and again and again. And as soon as he had performed the sacrifice, and he go, okay, now it's time to go to battle, there comes Samuel the prophet. And Samuel charges Saul with a very serious charge. And he says this in verse number 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. To do what God has called us to do as individuals, also as a local church and as a nation, is far better than looking very spiritual on the outside. God is far more interested in our heart and our attitude than our actions. So with that, I'm going to give you a summary of the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter number 7, and we'll be there in a few minutes' time. But 2 Samuel has a parallel book of the Bible. Have you ever heard of the book of Chronicles? 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel are line up, and they tell the same accounts, sometimes word for word, as they go along. And 2 Samuel begins with the death of the previous king, King Saul. And there's a time of mourning, there's a time of grief. Then goes on into the next chapters. You see that David, now anointed as the next king of Judah, but not the whole king of Israel, just the tribe of Judah. And there's another man who is a son of Saul who was set up as the king of Israel. You read through the book of 2 Samuel, there is intrigue, there is espionage, there is murder. It's by no means G-rated in the way that the battles go forward. And finally, David is anointed the king of both nations. And he wants to unite the nations together. And he brings in God's Ark of the Covenant, which which should have been in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies but had been out and away from Israel for 70 years. And now they're bringing it in. They have some mistakes and they fix those mistakes. and They repent of that and, they, and they're bringing it into Jerusalem for the first time in 70 years. David is on a spiritual high. He is celebrating. If, ever, if you're familiar with David and you've ever heard of it referred to as David danced before the Lord, that's from this passage right here. And as he's dancing before the Lord, he's celebrating what God has done. He's on a spiritual high. And then through that period of time, an idea comes to his mind. And outwardly, it seems like a really good idea. The idea was he wants to build God a temple. He sits back and looks at his own house and he goes, I have a really nice house. I think I'm going to build God a nice house like my house. Because that's just a good idea. And outwardly speaking, that sounds like an excellent idea. I think all of us would agree. We should build God a house. But that's where we have really our theme for the entire day. Go back to our principle again. To be a godly hero, I will hear and act upon God's will, not my will. And we, this morning we have four different points that we're going to walk through. And they all begin with G and P, which I'm quite proud of myself for that. And the G and the P, the grand plan, God's promise. We have a grateful prayer and finally a generational preparation. And you notice underneath each of them is a statement. The statement of I and then I will, you are, and then finally you must. And these are various statements that we're going to look at as far as attitudes go. So let's begin with that first point this morning. The first point is grand plans, and it begins with some I statements. David had some big plans. Can you all relate to that? Can you relate to the fact that you have some big plans in your life? It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. Maybe you're in high school and you have some grand plans. People are beginning to ask you, what are you going to do when you graduate? Which is one of the most hard questions when you don't know. What are your plans for the future? And so typically, as soon as you get out of uni, people ask you, now what are your plans for the future? What job are you going to get? It's as soon as you begin dating, people ask you, so when are you going to get married? And as soon as you get married, people are going to begin to ask you, when are you going to have babies? And as soon as you have begin to have babies, they're going to ask you, when are you going to stop having babies? <laughs> and all these various things of next stage of life as you go along. When are you going to buy a house? When are you going to do this? And there's all these plans that we have that are good things but we must filter them through what is the will of God David had a really good plan from the outside in 2 Samuel chapter number 7 we're going to read the first 3 verses and he had a great idea let's read those verses now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies the king said to Nathan the prophet see How I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do that all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. He had an idea. We all have ideas at various times. How do we know and filter it through what is God's will? So David has an idea. I want to build God a temple. I want to build him a house so we can worship God. He just came from a wonderful experience of, God, of worshiping God. And he says, I want to experience that all the time. I want to build God a house. And Nathan, the prophet of God, who was a godly man, said, that's an excellent idea. And then they leave. And then verse number four comes along. Continue reading. We have a reality check given to us by God. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. And he asks a a kind of a rhetorical question. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And as the passage continues on, he's laying out. He's going, no, I don't want you to build me a house. Now, as you think through that. Have you ever had some really good ideas? And you've told God, God, this is what I want to do for you. I want to do some incredible things in your name. I want to do this and this and this, and I want, in a sense, you, God, to get on board with my ideas rather than me saying, God, what do you want me to do? And I'll join you in your work. Both of them from the outside look very spiritual but have very different attitudes and very different outcomes. David here, I think, was very sincere in what he wanted to do. But notice it was Him-focused, rather than what God wanted. God came along and said, I don't want you to build me a temple. And here's a question I want you to mull over. In fact, I want you to mull this over all week long. Maybe this will mess with your head a little bit this week. How will you respond when God says no? When God closes the door of what seems to be an excellent idea. And we sometimes try to rationalize in our mind, God, if you just got on board with what I wanted to do and bless what I want to do, imagine all the things that I could do for you. Imagine how I could help lead people to Jesus Christ. Imagine the impact of feeding the hungry and helping and and giving clothes to the poor and giving shelter to people. Imagine all the things that I could do. And God says, that's not what I want you to do. But God, and we sometimes sound like, and I don't mean to make fun of little kids, but I will. But dad, has any of you kids ever said that? But dad, but mom. And if you're a kid here today, sorry, that's just what you sound like. And that's sometimes what we do. But dad, but God, don't you see what I want to do here? And he goes on and God so graciously and kindly hears David's plan and goes, that's not what I want you to do. I have something better for you. And we see God's promise. That's our second point this morning. God's promise. God takes the I statement of David, and he makes some statements of his own. He says, I will. This is what I am going to do in and through you. God reminded David that he had a plan that was bigger than David's plan. He had an eternal plan and eternal purpose bigger and greater than anything that David could have handled and imagined on his own. David was given some insight into the future. He was told about what God was going to do big picture, but he wasn't given specifics. And God knew the big picture plan for his life. And he says, I have a plan and purpose for you that's bigger and greater than what you can do by yourself and handle on your own. And God turns it around and says, I heard what you want to do. Well, I will. He says in verses 12 and 13, this is God talking. I will raise up your offspring after you who come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, which is a prophetic word about Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has, will do in the future when he sets up his future kingdom. Incredible and wonderful things we see there. Through that passage in 2 Samuel chapter number 7, God makes a number of I will statements. They're not going to be on the screen for you, But just listen to these I will statements. I scroll through them really quickly. He says, I will make your name great. He says, I will appoint the place for for my people. I will plant them. He goes on, I will give you rest. I will raise up your, your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. I will be a father to him. I will discipline him. God's saying here, I will, I will, I will. And he says, I've heard what you want to do, and that's good. But I have something bigger and greater for you. And he turns it around as a promise. And he says, let me remind you of my promises. Sometimes when we refer to God, we go, God, but God, I really want to do these things for you. We need to stop and say, God, what's the truth? What are the promises that you have for me? You see, God's promises were bigger than what David had thought. And so often I've experienced this myself. I had tremendous Plans for Southwest Baptist Church. Over the last decade of our church, how it's grown and developed, I've had some tremendous plans. And I can, with humility and praise to God, say, Thank you, God, that my plans did not eventuate because they were far smaller. I never imagined that we would have this entire school campus to use for our facilities. I never imagined the individual people that that God would bring to our church. It's incredible how God has opened up doors of opportunity that I never imagined. And if it was up to me to come up with the ideas, we would be nowhere where we are today. So I thank God that he has opened up some plans and he says, I will. David responded in the best way possible. In the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter number 22, he's talking to his son Solomon, and he says this, Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. So in other words, he's saying, God said your son Solomon's going to build the house. So David accepted that, and he goes off and begins to prepare his son Solomon. Verse 7 goes on and says, David said to Solomon, My son, I... I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon." And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. The name Solomon literally means peaceful. He goes on and says, And he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. God takes David's I statement and says, Well, here's what I will do with an I will statement. When God says no, it's often hard to to accept. We often have a time of grief, but in reality, it needs to turn into a time of praise and thankfulness to God that God shut a door because God's ways are far greater than our ways. It takes a lot of humility to admit we were wrong. It takes a lot of humility to say, I used to think a certain way, but I no longer think that way, and now I'm going to think a correct way. And it's even harder to admit that to our families. I was wrong. Now I'm getting used to it. I've been married for 18 years and I'm discovering that when I wake up in the morning, I look at my wife and before I say anything, good morning, I was wrong. And it's getting easier as time goes on, but it's, it's not easy at all. And it's not fun. I was thinking through in the medical profession, doctors would have a particular procedure, sometimes for generations, and look back upon it now, and we look back and say, there's no way we would ever do that. And I did not put a graphic picture on the screen for you, but you can do your own research, because I actually personally got queasy when I started looking at lobotomies. And if you're familiar with that, back in the 1880s, they were trying to treat psychological illness and particularly schizophrenia. Some doctor came up with the idea that if you take a pick, like a, sm- a large metal pick, and you go in the eye socket straight up into the brain, you can mess with the brain a little bit and pull it out, and you can somehow cure the schizophrenia. And they did that from the 1880s. The last person was in 1967. She actually passed away from the procedure. And many, many people died. And many people were institutionalized afterwards because you can't really go in and stick a pick in someone's brain and mess with it and expect them to be okay. And we look back upon that and go, what were they thinking? Why would they ever do that? And people in clear conscience, where well, that was the way that they always did it. And you imagine going through your entire medical profession because that's... A far longer than people's careers, and that was the way that you always thought things, and then you're coming along and going, we're not going to do that anymore. That's not the correct procedure. They had to humbly say, I was wrong. I'm going to go the correct way now. And we laugh at that sort of thing. Granted, I don't laugh at lobotomies. It's gross. But you think about how people change their mind, and we have to personalize that. What's God done in your life where He's closed the door, and you have had to come up and say, you know what, I'm going to go a different direction now. And we can thank God for that. And that's exactly how David responded. We see some grand plans. We see God's promise. We also can see the third point is a grateful prayer. David responded not in pouting. He wasn't angry at God for shutting the door. He actually turns it around and goes, God, thank you so much. First of all, for speaking to him. Secondly, for having a plan and purpose for his life. But we also see that he can understand, God, you protected me from going down a path that was not your will. We see in verse number 18, Then King David went and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And then he turns it around, and David, rather than saying I statements, he begins to worship God by using some you statements. If you look through that passage in verses 19 through the end of the chapter, you can see a number of you statements. I'm just going to read through them, they won't be on the screen. David says, You, talking about God, have spoken. You know your servant, your promise. Your own heart. You brought about this all this greatness. You are great. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. You redeemed for yourself. You established for yourself. You became their God. You have spoken. Your name will be magnified. You are God. Your words are true. You have promised. You look through that and you go, he totally changed his attitude. His attitude was, here's what I want to do for God. And God says no. And God reminds him of, the, of what is true. And David responded in the way that you and I should respond. He turns it around and goes, God, you're the one that's in control. And now his focus no longer is on what he wants to do. It's, his focus now is what God wants to do through him. And that's where the true power lies. We as a local church, but also break that down into individual families. As a husband and as a father, I have a responsibility. And turn that around on you as parents and as church members and as, as community members, as people that know Jesus Christ as a Savior. We have a tremendous responsibility. But the responsibility doesn't just end with us. We have to think beyond that. And that's our fourth point. It's generational preparation. And he begins with a statement. The statement that David uses, we find in 1 Chronicles, chapter number 22. Remember I said earlier, that's a parallel passage to 1 Samuel. And he's addressing his son Solomon. and He's preparing him for what he was going to do in the future. At this time, Solomon is not king. He's a young man. He's being prepared and molded and shaped. And there's a particular statement that, that David uses. He says, "...to these you must add." And what David is saying here is, I'm doing my part. I'm following God. I'm going to be the father that you need me to be. I'm going to be the leader that you need me to be. But you've got to do your part too. And this is where, as a parent, it actually is really scary. Because I realize, with two of my children in the room right now, that I have a great responsibility, and I don't want to mess up my kids too bad. I mean, they're a Nelson. They're going to have some scars just being a family of the Nelsons. As a husband and a father, we have a great responsibility for the next generation. As mothers, you have a great responsibility with the next generation. That's exactly what we see with David. He's talking to his son Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter number 22, verse number 11. And he says, Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God which he had spoken concerning you. God had taken the ability for David to build the temple, and he says, your son, Solomon, is going to build the temple. Your son is the one I'm going to work through. But he gave David permission to begin to prepare for those things. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this passage. It goes on in verse number 14. Now, with great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord. And he says, 100,000 talents of gold. Now, I did some math on Friday. One talent is equal to 32 kilos. 32,000 kilos of gold. One kilo of gold as of Friday, because the market fluctuates, is worth $82,000. So doing some quick math there and rounding, up, rounding a few things, we see uh, $278 billion dollars worth of gold has been set aside an incredible wealth in today's money if you need something to rationalize that with it's like a, like 130 optus stadiums being built incredible amount of wealth that david had put aside and he goes on and he says a million talents of silver now one a, a, kilo of silver in today's money is worth a thousand dollars and he goes on and says and bronze and iron beyond weighing for there is so much of it and he goes on and says timber and stone too i have provided and then he says like the statement we said earlier to these you must add david says i've done my part i have prepared and put aside an incredible wealth but you've got to do your part too As a husband and as a father and as a pastor, I have a responsibility to instill what we find in the truth of the Word of God to my children also, but they've got to take it and accept it for themselves so they can add to it as well. The same thing for you. You know what you know about the Word of God as you're growing and developing. We also have the responsibility to impart that to the next generation so they can add to it as well. It goes on and he says, You have an abundance of workmen stone cutters, masons, carpenters, all the kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled and working, gold, silver, and bronze and iron. And look at that. He began to prepare the next generation. But you don't just wake up one day and go, okay, I'm a master craftsman today. It takes year upon year upon year. So I believe at this time, David would have started using modern language. He would have started a lot of technical colleges, a lot of tafes. A lot of people would begin to work through and become stonemasons, and they would become people that worked with gold and silver and iron. They would start off with a whole bunch of people sweeping the floors in the first year of apprenticeship, and they worked their way through, and eventually they became masters, and they were developing and preparing so that when they were ready to start building the temple, they already had tens of thousands of people. Prepared and ready to build the temple. But it didn't start the day they started building the temple. It started a generation earlier. This obedience was something bigger than what David could have done at the immediate time. God saw the big picture. And he gives the challenge to his son Solomon. And he says, arise and work. The Lord be with you. We have a huge responsibility As it says there in verse number 14, to these you must add. As we consider our own personal obedience, which is very important. Your relationship between you and God must be, God, what do you want me to do? Much like our principle is, it's to be a godly hero. We want to hear and act upon God's will. I want to hear God's will. I want to act upon it but also want to make sure that I can instill it to the next generation. Nothing would personally thrill me more than to see Southwest Baptist Church and the people within it and the children within it being the leaders of our church, bigger and greater and greater impact than anything we could possibly think of today. But it begins with what we are obedient with today. And our greatest example of obedience is not your pastor. It is not your family. It is Jesus Christ. And we find in the book of Philippians, chapter number two, that Jesus Christ is our example. But he's more than our example. He's our Savior. What we're going to do, I'm going to read some scripture. And then we're going to have a word of prayer together. And then we'll have a time of be just quiet for a minute or two. And in that time, the time to let God speak to you and reflect upon your obedience? Is there an area in your life that God's prompting you right now? And I've specifically been very general in what I've spoken of today in regards to obedience, because I want God to speak to you, not to me to influence you. And as God prompts your heart, spend some time in prayer. Maybe He's brought an individual to your mind and an opportunity, something He's opening a door or possibly closing a door. But don't let this moment go past and be gone before you let God speak to you. Let's read the scripture. This is the goal. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each look not on his own interests, but also the interests of others. And here's our example.